All right. Hello, everyone. Good to see you. It is great to be back. I just finished a, a nine-week sabbatical. Uh, it was incredibly life-giving and restorative. Thanks so much for that opportunity. And, and kudos to the teaching team that we assembled for the summer, Pastor KJ and Pastor Stetson and Pastor Steve and Matt Rosenbaum. Hey, man, those guys killed it every week. Really, they did a great job. So proud of those guys. And uh, they're, they're great, so grateful for their ministry to this body. You know, one of the things I did on the sabbatical, I had the opportunity to go to some different churches, um, kind of in the northern Colorado, Denver area, and, and a lot of great, great churches. But I got to say, I love our church, okay? I love our church. I love our, our heart for worship. I love uh, just our openness to the spirit. I love our movement towards the community and, and for the city and beyond and all of those things. Man, I just love what God's doing here. I, I miss being here. Uh, so I'm really glad to be back. Okay, so two weeks ago, my family went to Dallas. We traveled to Dallas to attend the wedding of, of a niece. Um, and I'm super excited about our niece and, and my new nephew um, in law. And uh, so we're super excited about all that. And the wedding was, was, it was great, great weekend. And the wedding itself was in nor north of Dallas in a place called Highland Park. But, but the reception and the hotel that we were staying at, the reception was at this hotel. They were, that was right, it was right in the heart of downtown Dallas. I mean, literally, so one afternoon we walked five blocks to see where Kennedy had been assassinated. And then on the way back, as we were walking back, we were, walked right past the place where five police officers were shot uh, two weeks ago by a sniper in this racially motivated, horrible, horrible uh, deal. Um, um, I mean, you could, you, could, you could almost, you could just feel this sense of this palpable, sense of grief and angst and anger. And it's not just Dallas. I mean, it's our nation right now. The recent events in Louisiana and Minnesota and Orlando and Kansas City, I mean, violence and anger. I mean, the political climate is, is charged with so much anger and it's only going to get worse in the months ahead. This is our nation right now. Okay, so, so the wedding was beautiful, of course, and, and we're all dressed up. I had to find three suits for my, my you know, suits for my three boys. After all, it, it, it was Dallas, and they dress up in Dallas. You know, they dress up to go shopping in Dallas, right? So, so and we're from Colorado. What's a suit, right? You know, what's a suit? Um, anyway, so, so we go back to the hotel, um, which again, this hotel, it's in the middle of the, this recent violence, and, and, and we go to the reception, and we had a great meal, and the DJ started doing his thing, and, and some people, you know, started dancing, mainly the wedding party and some friends, but right at the end of the evening, right at the end of the evening, for the last song, the DJ puts on Shout, the Blues Brothers, you know, version of Shout, you know, you, you know, you make me want to, yeah, that, that song. And everyone, nearly everyone, right, gets on the dance floor, including my 86-year-old dad, okay, and I got a picture on my phone here, if you want to check this out, uh, that is my dad um, on the dance floor doing Shout. I have never seen my dad raise a hand for anything before, I mean, that was just amazing, it was, a, it was an awesome moment. So um, for, for all the hundred people on that dance floor, there was this palpable sense of overflowing joy and love in that moment. I mean, it was so cool. There were no walls. There was no anger, no distinction between age groups or races or whatever. For four minutes, for four minutes, we all tasted of something that felt so good, especially in that location, in this season. Well, then the song ended, 
We got our stuff, had to leave, went out in the hall to throw whatever confetti stuff, right? And I'm standing there waiting for the couple and I hear someone griping about someone else and criticizing another person. I thought, oh, back to real life, right? Back to real life. But, but here's a question, here's a question. Wouldn't it be cool, wouldn't it be cool to be a part of a movement that had the power to actually shift the angry, violent atmosphere of our culture, not just for four minutes, but forever. Wouldn't it be amazing to be a part of a movement that, would, that, that helped drive out anger and conflict and the angst in our culture and instead bring an overflowing sense of love? Well, here's the deal. There actually is a movement like that. There actually is a movement like that. It's a movement that was started by Jesus. And, and this movement is, is intended to be carried out by, the, by, 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 by this gathering of his followers, right? This thing called the church. Now, now, I know for some of you here, you can't imagine, you can't imagine how the church could be a part of any significant movement in changing our culture. I mean, right, maybe you grew up going to a church that just felt irrelevant, boring, right? Or perhaps your perception of church is that it's all about people, you know, pointing fingers and judging people. Maybe you attended a church where anger seemed to be the prevailing attitude. Everyone's just angry at everyone outside of the church, right? Sort of us versus them mentality, which only fuels the anger and the divisiveness in our society. I realize that for some of us here, it's probably hard with that, those perceptions of the church, and those are real, it's probably hard to imagine how the church could be a culture changer. And I get that. But what I'm asking you to do for a few minutes here is to set aside that understanding of church and to imagine yourself, imagine yourself being a part of the crowd on that day that Jesus first laid out his vision for his followers, his vision for this movement that he wanted to create. I mean, we can experience that movement. We can experience that moment here, that this vision cast, this teaching by placing ourselves in the book of Luke in chapter 6. If so if you have your Bible or iPad, smartphone, whatever, I mean, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 6. Um, we, we looked at the first five and a half chapters of the book of Luke last summer, and this book was written by a, by a physician named Luke surprise, surprise, who interviewed dozens of eyewitnesses, people who were actually, who actually saw Jesus. People who were actually with Jesus. So Luke's account is a very detailed, very informative eyewitness account of the life and the teaching of Jesus. And so in the first five and a half chapters of this book, Luke describes, um, six and a half actually, the first six and a half chapters, Luke describes Jesus' birth and the beginning of his ministry, how he began healing people and how he began making the religious leaders mad because he kept breaking all their rules. And so news about him was spreading. And so much so that Luke tells us in chapter six that people from all over over Judea, from as far away as Jerusalem, even from the coastal regions, have come this after this particular day. They have come. Why? We'll read in verse 18. To hear Jesus and be healed of their diseases, that those troubled by evil spirits were cured. This is verse 18 and 19. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him. 
and healing them all. I mean, so all these people are gathered and power is flowing from Jesus. I mean, he is love in the flesh here, right? He is just loving people. People's lives are being transformed. People who who are sick, who are in spiritual bondage, they're being freed by Jesus' love and and his power. So, So all this is happening. And what does Jesus do in this moment? I mean, he could have just continued to heal and and to pray for people and all that. But instead, he stands up and he begins teaching. And not just any teaching. In this first recorded message of Jesus we have in this book, he stands before all of these interested people who are kind of potential followers maybe. They're trying to explore who this Jesus is. He, He stands up and he gives them his vision for what this movement is supposed to look like. He wants them and us to clearly understand what his followers are to be characterized by. In other words, what this church, this gathering of his followers is to look like. And there is one word that summarizes his entire vision, that summarizes his entire message. Love. Love. Now, I I know we hear that, some of us hear that and think, well, of course, you know, we are in church and Jesus, you know, love, all that, yada, 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 you know, all that stuff. But, but, but hang with me here because the love that Jesus is describing here, the love that he, he, that he casts in this vision, he, he, he totally redefines the word. I mean, this is way beyond some Blake Shelton lyrics. I mean, this is way beyond warm, fuzzy feelings and trite platitudes. The love he is describing is hard. It's radical. It's challenging. It is counterintuitive, which is why I think the church has so often drifted from this message over the last 2,000 years. Because it is so much easier to condemn and to judge and to criticize and to withdraw and to separate ourselves than it is to actually love the way Jesus describes. Jesus is describing here an overflowing, counterintuitive, challenging love that has the power to shift the atmosphere of our anger-filled families and neighborhoods and cities and schools and culture. So what we're going to do over the next four weeks is to walk through this amazing vision cast, this entire message by Jesus to his followers. And today we're going to look at the first section of this message. It's found in verses 20 to 26 of Luke 6. The entire sermon actually goes to verse 49. And I want to encourage you, just a side note here. This is really important though. I want to encourage you, I kind of want to challenge you over the next few weeks. I want to encourage you to read Jesus' entire sermon here in this passage. Read it several times. Read this sermon several times. Maybe you've never read the Bible before. This would be a great section to look at for all of us. Let's let these these words permeate our hearts because they are so powerful, not just in our own lives, but they're words that have the power to change the atmosphere in our culture. So let me read this section. And again, imagine that you're there that day. You've traveled to hear and see this Jesus. You're there that day. And then you hear Jesus speak these words to you and to the crowd there. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, 
for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is God's word. Now this is a pretty challenging passage to understand. It's foundational, but it's kind of challenging. Is Jesus saying that it's wrong to be rich? That it's wrong to have people think well of you? That it's wrong to have food on the table? Is he saying there's some spiritual value in, in, you know, in living in economic poverty? That we shouldn't laugh? That we should just cry all the time? Clearly that's not what Jesus is saying. I mean, he himself laughed. He often went to parties. He had friends who were very wealthy. I'm sure he had plenty of meals where he ate his fill and he had a lot of people that liked him. So to take his words in a very literal, rigid way would be to miss his point. Jesus often spoke in hyperbole. He often spoke in hyperbole to make a point and, and that's what he's doing here. In this passage, he, he is clearly differentiating between two different ways of living. One I would describe as a life of overflow and one is a life of scarcity. Now the power of this passage is that Jesus switches the price tags, right? He takes what we often use, he takes how we often define overflow, i.e. having all that we need and more, and he actually defines that as scarcity. And then he takes what we often define as scarcity and he describes that as overflow. So what is he saying here? It's so important. We dare not miss this because it is at the heart of how we experience God. If we miss this, we really miss everything. It's at the heart of how we experience God. There may be some of you here right now and you're sitting, maybe you're sitting with a parent or maybe you're just kind of walked into church or whatever. There's maybe some of you who are, who have, or you are in the process of rejecting Christianity. You're, you're just reject, you're kind of thinking it's not really true. But I want you to consider that what you're rejecting may not be Christianity at all. What you are rejecting, Jesus also rejects. And, and this passage shows us how. So let's get at the heart of what Jesus is saying. Before us are two pathways. Again, one is a life of scarcity, spiritually speaking, and one is a life of overflow. Now, I want to use a really simple illustration to help us distinguish between these two ways of living. So hold your hands out in front if you're willing to do this. Hold your hands out in front of you and make a fist, okay? You make a fist. That is the posture of a life of scarcity, our fists closed, either our fists, hands closed. Life of scarcity. Now open your hands, palms up. That's the posture of an overflowing life. And they are radically different ways of living. And each one of us has a choice as to which way we will live. Okay, you can put your hands down here. Let's talk first about the scarcity path. The scarcity path. It's described in verse 24 to 26. Let me read this again. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. 
Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. These verses here describe a life of spiritual scarcity. There are several evidences that Jesus mentions here, and all of us are vulnerable to them, okay? So one one evidence is self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency, verse 24. He says, woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your your comfort. See, in our society, in our culture, we value self-sufficiency, right? We value it. But from a spiritual perspective, being self-sufficient is not good. It's dangerous. Why is that? Well, we see why. In the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, right? There, there, early in the book, there are seven letters written by Jesus to seven different churches. And listen to what he says to one of the churches. This is chapter 3, verse 17. You say, Jesus is speaking to the church. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See, this is a group of people who were self-sufficient. They were rich. They, they were rich physically speaking, right? They, 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 economically, they, they didn't think they needed anything. And Jesus says, you don't realize, you don't see how spiritually needy you really are. Their self-sufficiency had actually blinded them. And it does the same thing to us does the same thing to us. I mean, think about this. When in our lives are we more prayerful? Are we more focused on God and seeking God? When, you know, more looking for worship songs? All, when, when in our lives are we doing those things more? It's when our life is not going well, usually, right? <laughs> it's when things are not going well. The most spiritually dangerous place to be is when things are going well. Because we can become, begin to become self-sufficient and we forget how needful of God we really are. That's a very dangerous thing. Another evidence of living um, in the scarcity path is self-indulgence. Jesus says in the next verse, verse 25, woe to you who are well-fed now for you will go hungry. See, this is a person who is seeking satisfaction in things that won't satisfy it could be accumulating more stuff or more successes or a better body. It could be food or alcohol or, or, or drugs. It could be porn. You know, we look to these things to, so the, to make us feel well-fed, to feel satisfied, but they don't satisfy. They don't. They leave us hungry. I mean, the Rolling Stones nailed it. I can't get no satisfaction, right? Because I try and I try and I try and I try. It's not there, no matter how hard we try. Well, self-protection is another evidence of this pathway, this scarcity pathway. Jesus says in verse 25, woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Now, he's not saying his followers shouldn't laugh. What he's describing is the laugh that hides the real us. It's living with a smile painted on our face when we're really dying inside. You know, we're living, we live our lives pretending to have our act together and that everything is okay, feeling the need to hide what's really going on. Don't, don't admit weakness, right? Don't admit fear or brokenness or a struggle with some addiction. We don't want people to see who we really are. We want to hide. 
And, and, and the reality is we hide in all sorts of ways. We've kind of perfected it ever since Adam, but we hide in all sorts of ways, right? Behind our business success, our vocation, our appearance, our busyness. I remember a difficult season in my life, and, and in, in the midst of this season, I remember coming to this realization, I don't really like myself. I don't really like me, right? I compare myself to other people and I say, man, I wish I was more of that and could do that and more of this and less of this. And I mean, so, so often, I don't know if anyone can relate to that, but so often we carry this deeply rooted shame, this self-hatred, and it drives us. Here's the problem. It drives us to hide behind our false smiles and in our vocation and our performance and our appearance. We, we, we're often, we're just terrified of failure. We're, we're terrified of, of, of rejection. We're fearful of rejection. We're afraid of people really knowing us. And here's the problem. All those are fearful, right? And, and here's the problem with fear. This is scriptural here. Fear and love cannot coexist. Fear and love cannot coexist. We are unable to really love people when we're driven by fear. So, so as long as we keep building these protective walls that keep people from seeing the real us, it will stifle, we stifle our capacity to truly love. Our overflow potential is really more, it becomes a trickle. And that, again, that's scarcity, self-protection. I'm not going to show you what's really going on. One other evidence of, of living this scarcity, uh, another evidence that Jesus mentions here is self-promotion. Self-promotion. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. No, notice who Jesus is talking about here. He refers to their ancestors. See, he is clearly talking about the religious leaders, the Pharisees, right? He, he's talking about these guys who would pray on street corners so that people would see them. And they would, they would give offering gifts and they would do it publicly so that people would see how much they were giving. They wanted others to notice how holy they were how pious they were. That that's, and this is exactly what religiosity does. It's what religion does. It focuses on external behavior. So here's the do's and the don'ts, and here's the list of things. It, it, it focuses on the behaviors, and it ignores the motive. So we end up trying to cover our insecurity, right, with the opinions of other people. Oh, look at me. Look at how awesome I am, right? Or when that, when that doesn't happen, when we don't hear those accolades, we, we may just promote ourselves, dropping subtle or not so subtle hints about how great we are, right? When, when my kids were growing up, um, they would offer, often encounter someone at the school or neighborhood or whatever who, who always kind of had to promote um, themselves and talk about how good they were at tennis or how good they, how, what their ACT score was or, or whatever. And I, I, would, I would try to remind my kids, whenever that, I would try to remind my kids that a person who needs to promote themselves is deeply insecure, that they don't really believe, they don't really believe that they have value in just being them. So they have to prove it. They have to tell you about it. So, so all of these things, self-sufficiency and self-indulgence and self-protection and self-promotion, they are all tight-fisted ways of living. And they, they, and they result in a life of spiritual scarcity. They shrink our heart. They decrease, and this is so important, they decrease our capacity to love. All of them. They decrease our capacity to love, which is not the life Jesus invites us to experience. And so, so let's shift gears here. 
And let's talk about that. Let's talk about the overflow path. Because again, this is the foundation for the whole message he gives here about love. But this is the foundation, the overflow path. How do we live a life of spiritual overflow? A life that's really spilling over with love. Well, Jesus tells us, and it is a radically different way of living. Rather than living in tight-fisted scarcity, this life is open-handed. It's open-handed. So, so how do we experience this kind of life? Well, let's just kind of unpack what Jesus says here. It begins verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, this is not a statement about economics. This is not a statement about financial poverty. In the, in the book of Matthew's version of this same sermon, same message, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit which captures the essence of what Jesus is saying here. See, Jesus is describing a posture of the heart. And it's the opposite of self-sufficiency. It's a person who realizes that they're needy. A person who is willing to admit they're broken. That they don't have their act together. That they need help from Jesus. And see, notice, notice what Jesus says that person receives. This is great. He said, the kingdom of God. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So, so what is the kingdom of God? Well, it represents the presence of God, right? It represents the fullness of God and the resources of God. It is a place of absolute abundance, spiritually speaking. It's a place of overflow, right? More grace and more love and, and more power than we could ever imagine. That's what he's describing here. But the prerequisite is being poor in spirit. See, and this, this is the essence of Christianity and so many people that reject Christianity, they miss this. They miss this and it's understandable because in a lot of places this is not taught, but this is, this is, this is the essence of genuine Christianity, brokenness. It's being aware of our neediness. See, we often intuitively think that the way to get close to God is to make ourselves better, clean ourselves up. Stop swearing, stop lying, stop sleeping around, try hard to become a better person. Clean yourself up, which ironically leads to self-sufficiency, trusting in our own goodness, our own ability, our own righteousness. And Jesus says, that is not the way. And the sooner you get off that path, the better. When we cling, when we trust in our own ability, our own goodness, our fists are closed. We can't receive the kingdom of God with closed fists. We can't. We can't receive the overflowing love of God with closed fists, without an awareness of our need. Our hands are full. But when we open our hands, when we admit our need, and we look to Jesus, we place our trust in Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead for our, for our life. We experience his life. We experience his kingdom. We experience his love and, and his power. And, and folks, this is not a one-time thing. This is, oh yeah, he's talking about conversion there. I am talking about conversion and the rest of every day of our lives, right? This is not a one-time thing. This is a way of life. See, Jesus says, the more we live with open hands, the more we live with an awareness of our need, the more fully we will experience his kingdom. Jesus continues, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. You see, when we look to this world to satisfy, we become self-indulgent, which we described a moment ago. We become self-indulgent. We become unsatisfied, dissatisfied. But when we look to Jesus to fill our hunger, 
He brings ultimate satisfaction. He brings contentment and peace, a love that overflows. I mean, the world can't offer you that. It can't offer that. It doesn't satisfy, but Jesus does. In fact, here's, this is so important. If, you, if your deepest hunger is for Jesus, he will satisfy that hunger. If your deepest hunger is for Jesus, he will satisfy that hunger. Continuing on to verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. See, what a contrast to what we described earlier. Remember, we described a person whose laugh was a protective barrier. Oh, I'm doing great, right? They put up a front. They put up the smiling face, the protective veneer to try and impress others. But Jesus says, no, no. I want you to be real. See, I want you to have the freedom to weep, to admit that you're sad, to admit that you're depressed, to admit that you don't have it all together. See, one of the characteristics of an overflowing life is authenticity. It's authenticity. It's being real. It's being vulnerable. It's not pretending, not not trying to prove we have value, not feeling a need to promote ourselves. No, no, no. It's it's, it's dead. It's It's experiencing Jesus' love in our tears. Jesus' love in our places of shame and grief and self-hatred. See, this is, this is what Jesus wants his church to be like. This is what he wants his followers to be like. He wants his church to be like a place where broken people can admit they don't have their act together. A place where people can feel sadness over the death of a loved one. A place where a woman could admit the grief and shame she feels from an abortion she had 20 years ago. A place where a single again dad can admit a struggle with loneliness. A place where people can honestly share their struggle with same-sex attraction or with porn or with alcohol addiction. See, this is Jesus' vision for his followers. It's right here. This is his vision for his followers. It's his vision for, the, for his church. To live, for us to live with an open hand rather than feeling the need to hide something and to have it all together. There's one other evidence of an overflowing life that Jesus mentions, and this one we kind of prefer to skip over, but but we won't. Okay, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Now this verse, I think is, it's so misinterpreted, so often misunderstood. Notice, it's very important. Who is doing the persecuting? The religious leaders. The religious leaders. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees who earlier in the chapter we read, they're already trying to find a way to kill him. He, He was talking about them. Their ancestors, that's who he's referring to. See, Jesus wasn't crucified by the sinful, immoral, worldly people of the day. He was crucified by moral, upstanding churchgoers. By moral, upstanding religious people who were living lives of scarcity and were offended by his life of overflow. 
That's what's going on here. Any, anytime we are living this overflowing life that we're going to talk about for the next few weeks, or anytime we're living this overflowing life as described in Jesus' sermon here, we will experience persecution from religious people, from upstanding, moral, good people who go to church. This is so important to understand. It's so important, especially in our climate, the culture right now. Jesus is not saying that when we experience persecution for being judgmental and condemning and non-loving towards sinful people, that we will have a great reward in heaven. That's not what he's saying. There is no reward in heaven for being a jerk. There is no reward in heaven for being a self-righteous, judgmental jerk. None. That's not the persecution he's talking about. The reward is for those who live this overflowing life. And they experience persecution for it because of how they love. See, what Jesus is describing in this verse, and I love this, this is so amazing. He's just, what he's describing are people who are so secure in his love for them that the opinions and the threats and the insults from other people, even religious people, don't affect them. They are so secure in his love for them that the opinions and the threats and all the other stuff from other, these other people don't affect them. To live an overflowing life is to be so abundantly secure in the Father's love for us that the opinions and the actions of other people don't matter. They don't impact our identity. They don't impact our sense of belovedness. They don't impact our ability to love. That's what he's talking about. It's amazing, really. What Jesus is describing in this passage, is tr it's truly an amazing way to live. It changes everything. It changes everything. When we know, when we know in the depth of our being that we are loved by Jesus, we don't have to pretend. We, we have our act together. We don't have to run after things that, that don't satisfy. We, 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 don't have to, we don't have to boast about our accomplishments, making sure everyone sees you know, how wonderful we are. We can experience, when we know we are loved by Jesus, we can experience the kingdom of God. We can experience the presence of God in a greater way. In fact, when I think about the kingdom of God, after reading this passage, looking at this passage, when I think about the kingdom of God, you know, you know what I envision? I envision that dance floor in Dallas. Right in the middle of where anger and racism and a horrible tragedy had occurred, there was a group of people who were filled with love and joy and freedom. See, that to me is a picture of what Jesus wants his church to be like. This gathering of people in the middle of the darkness and the anger of our culture, this gathering of people, a group of people who are so in love with Jesus, who are so aware of his love for them that it makes them want to shout. <laughs> his love for them makes them want to celebrate and to love others with this amazing love. You see, the, the question that God is asking you and me, and he's going to be asking for the next few weeks if you want to come back for this stuff, but the, the question that, that he's asking, and he's going to keep on asking, is this question, are you on the dance floor or not? 
Are you on the dance floor or not? Are you living with open hands, allowing yourself to be loved by Jesus just the way you are? And, 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 and filling you, allowing him to fill you with love for other people. Are you on that dance floor or are you sitting at a table? And we all know the tables at receptions, right? Are you sitting at a table too self-sufficient, too self-conscious, too proud to jump into the celebration, to jump into the experience of God's amazing love? Let's pray together. So if God's kingdom is a dance floor, where are you? If his kingdom is a, a dance floor, the way I've been describing it, where are you? Are you sitting at a table in this life of tight-fisted scarcity with self-sufficient doing okay, maybe self-indulgent, chasing after things that aren't satisfying, maybe self-promoting, maybe self-protective, just afraid of being known, afraid of what other people will think. Are you hiding behind this veneer of having it all together? Is there fear, is there control or drivenness or pride? Well, here's the cool thing. Jesus wants to just, he wants to forgive, right? And so I want us just to take a moment and maybe you've never prayed to Jesus before. This is a great way to begin. Just take a moment and just admit to him in the quiet of your heart, just admit to him, boy, that's me tight-fisted, afraid to admit my need, protective, you know, self-protective, putting up a veneer, that's me. And Jesus, I just confess that to you. I confess the ways this manifests in my life. I don't want to live a life of scarcity. So just take a moment in the quiet of your heart and just admit it to him your need. Admit to him this, this way you've been living apart from him, apart from his love. Now here's the wonderful thing. Jesus is such an awesome savior. He, he meets us in our broken places. <laughs> This is the gospel. He, we, we don't have to hide. We can admit it to him. He meets us in those places of shame and pride and control and drivenness and fear. He meets us there. So let's just take a moment, just open our hearts to him. Jesus, come into those places and bring your love. I pray you'd come into those places, maybe those secret closets that have been locked for years and our lives were too afraid to even admit are there. You would, you know all about those things. You would come into those places. We want to open our hearts and our hands to you. We, we are poor in spirit. We admit we need you. We pray you tear down the barriers that we live behind and we build. We want to just be authentic. We want to be real not hiding anything. We just welcome your love. We welcome your presence. 
into these places in our lives. Would you pour out more of your love? Holy Spirit, we pray, as, you, as it says in your word, Romans 5, that you pour out the love of the Father into our hearts. And we want to we pray for that experience, that in our neediness, in our brokenness, in our awareness, Lord, you would come and fill us with love. Fill us with love. We want to step onto that dance floor. <laughs> we want to step onto that dance floor, that place of overwhelming love and joy that you are pouring out. We don't want to sit at a table somewhere and just watch from a distance, too afraid. We want to step in to your love, Lord, and just live in the fullness of your love. And so I pray for that. Even now, God, you would pour out your presence, pour out your life here. Pour out your love as we, as we worship you, as we worship you. So I want you to stand for just a moment and I want you to do something as we prepare just to be led in worship here. But I want you to, if you're willing to do this with me here, I want you to go back to the, the analogy I used. So first of all, just put your hands out in front and I want you to close your hands, right? There are your fists. You have your two fists in front of you. Now with those fists closed in that position, I want you to try and hold hands with the person next to you. What's the problem? You can't do it, right? You can't do it. When we are living with closed fists, when we were living self-sufficient, self-indulgent, self-promoted, self-protective lives, we can't love other people. So now open your hands. Take hold of the hand on either side of you. See, when our hands are open, when we're acknowledging our need and we're not protecting ourselves, we're, we're acknowledging our own brokenness and our own experience of God's grace, guess what? We can love others. We can love other people. And so with our hands joined together, I just want to pray for us just for a moment here. God, would you help us as we experience your love? Would you help us learn to love others well? You would help us as a church, help us as in, in our communities, in our families, help us love well. Help us love with open hands and show us what that looks like, Lord. And we know that that ability, it's rooted in your love for us. And so we open our hearts and our lives to your love. Okay, you can let go of that hand unless you don't want to, and they're okay with that. But, uh, but Lord Jesus set us free to worship you, we, to, to really just find joy on this dance floor of your presence. We love you so much. Thank you, Lord.